from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the last CER podcast of 2023. My name is Octavia Hughes and today we're going to review the year and look ahead to 2024 with some of the researchers here at the CER. Let's start with Elisabetta Cornago, who's going to bring us up to speed with the EU's year in the context of climate and energy. So Elisabetta, what would you say have been the highlights of EU energy and climate policy in 2023? Thank you, Octavia. Yeah, if we look back at this very CR end of your podcast, last year was quite different. It was all about the energy crisis, dissecting the measures that the EU had put in place to mitigate its impacts, and also laying out the risks ahead for 2023. So let me break down then my answer in three parts. First, I'll look at Europe's security of supply, how it has played out in the past year. Second, I'll take a look at milestones in EU energy policy. And third, at climate policy. So the main I guess, policy highlights of the past year. Perhaps let me also do some self-publicity and say that I, I go into much more detail in a bunch of these things in a policy brief that we published last week titled EU Climate and Energy Policy After the Energy Crunch. First off, in terms of Europe's energy security of supply, it's fair to say that Europe has avoided gas shortages and power blackouts in the past year, which is good news, really, as there were fears that that might not be the case. That has been due to the fact that demand of both gas and electricity was reduced by impressive margins, both by residential consumers and by industry. And in terms of supply on the gas front, Europe has increased, quite importantly, its imports of liquefied natural gas and cut back on pipeline Russian gas. On the electricity front, French nuclear energy generation is up again after hitting 30-year low in 2022 due to a perfect storm really of reactor corrosion issues and other maintenance problems. But the energy crisis, on the other hand, has not reversed Germany's nuclear power phase-out, which went ahead as planned. Most importantly, on the power supply side, it's worth mentioning that renewable power generation has been hitting new highs. And all these has signaled the importance, really, of having a well-interconnected power market with functioning grids so that regions with different generation resources and demand patterns can efficiently trade with each other. There are also some good news on the price front because natural gas and electricity prices have come down quite substantially from their peaks that we saw in August 2022. So this is good news for European consumers, though it's true that prices remain higher than pre-war. And we also see that higher dependence on liquefied natural gas or LNG does make Europe more exposed to fluctuations of prices of this commodity on global markets. One final note on energy markets. This time last year in this podcast, I was saying that only time would tell if Western sanctions on Russian oil would work out, referring to the price cap on Russian oil that the G7 and allies introduced at $60 a barrel. And while it turns out it hasn't worked out so well, recently the Financial Times was reporting that almost none of the shipments of Russian seaborne crude in October 23 were actually traded below this limit. So this, I guess, shows the limit of perhaps this, this sanctions approach and is something that the EU and its allies will need to grapple with if they really want to cut the income, the revenues that the Kremlin gets from oil trade. Now, if we move on to your second point, what's happened in EU energy policy? 
Right. Well, on the energy policy front, again, in order to face the energy crunch, governments intervened in energy market both in 2022 and 2023. The European Commission allowed a national level interventions such as energy consumption subsidies, price caps, taxes on market operators, windfall profits. And John Springford and myself published a policy brief in March looking at the type of measures that different EU member states were putting in place to protect consumers and at their fiscal impact. So the fact that these types of energy subsidies have ballooned indicates a broken taboo in a way, really, at a time when instead they should be coming down to encourage energy efficiency. And the Commission, as a consequence of the energy price spike, had also allowed a sort of gas price cap, though it has never been triggered to prices falling, but it looks like some of these price suppressing interventions might stick around longer than foreseen. Recently, we've seen the Commission propose to extend this gas market correction mechanism by one year as a sort of insurance policy against more turmoil on gas markets. And on top of that, governments will also be allowed to roll out extraordinary state aid to help out those businesses that are suffering due to high energy prices until mid-2024. So you can see how all these tells us that perhaps the lingering appeal of price controls and more generous state support are not quite gone yet, and they might be longer lasting legacy of the energy crisis. So I guess this is a bit about the, the repercussions, again, of the energy crunch on the policy sphere, but we can also point to a couple of new energy policy proposals that saw the light in 23. And I'd say the main one, which is now undergoing the final phases of negotiation at EU level, is the reform of the used electricity market design. Two main sets of changes that these proposals wants to bring forward. On the wholesale market front, the reform wants to mainstream long-term contracts for low-carbon electricity generation, which is a complicated technical way to say that the the objective of all this is to stabilize prices after a period of very volatile and high prices and improve the business case for low-carbon power generators to continue investing in renewables particularly. On the retail market front, what the reform does is that it puts forward some common guidelines that member states would have to follow when they roll out consumer support in case of future energy crisis. So this signals one of the shifts that the energy crunch has prompted. Perhaps the Commission now sees that a degree of government intervention in energy prices is almost inevitable in the event of price spikes, and it aims to standardize these interventions. Maybe a final nod to one of the recent additions to the EU energy policy toolkit has been an action plan on grids. And this indicates how much importance is being given these days, not only to the need to add more energy generation to the power market. So think more wind turbines, more solar panels to replace coal and gas power plants, but also to the transmission and distribution networks that are necessary to bring green power to consumers. This year, we've heard a lot about backlash on climate action. Has this slowed down the EU's climate ambitions? Yeah, you're right. Backlash on climate action has been quite a buzzword in Brussels recently. I would say that the energy crisis has not overall slowed down the EU's climate ambitions. And this really, I think, is good news despite fears and even demands to the contrary. We can see that most policies within the package that the EU put forward to achieve its 2030 climate goal of cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. The infamous Fit for 55 package, not the catchiest name, to be fair. So most of the policies within this package have been approved and are now in force. And this has been coupled with a brand new carbon 
carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is a very important innovation, I guess, in the EU climate policy toolkit. And it will be a very important one to watch in the coming year because many EU trade partners have been grumbling about having to pay a carbon price to sell some carbon intensive goods to the EU, such as iron or steel. So we'll have to see how that plays out also in terms of trade politics, as well as in observing how that changes, I guess, the carbon intensity of the trade of of these goods. Something that I think was not necessarily a given at the time of very high energy prices is the fact that carbon pricing has also been expanded to new sectors in the EU, most importantly road transport and heating with the new emissions trading scheme that will come into effect in 2027. We can also though see that some examples of policies that were approved with last minute exemptions or concessions, which makes them, I'd say, still steps forward, but perhaps not as long steps as would have been nice to see. And I think a very clear example of this approach has been that earlier this year, the EU approved the phase out of vehicles with internal combustion engines, so traditional cars that use gasoline or diesel to run. They will be phased out from sales as of 2035. And this really is a big deal because it pays the way for the mainstreaming of electric vehicles. But at the last minute, Germany tried to block this proposal, which resulted in a lot of drama, really, and ultimately in the introduction of, of an exemption where internal combustion engine cars will still be allowed on the market if they can run exclusively on carbon neutral synthetic fuels. Now, again, this is a, a bit of a technical note, but it's a very niche technology, which is not expected to reach the mass market, but it's a good example of how organized interests, in this case, the car industry interests, the powerful German car industry specifically, can slow efforts for green reform, even by introducing this type of exemption. So if we look now to the future, what are your predictions for the EU's climate and energy policy in 2024? Well, 2024 is going to be the year of European elections, which I'm sure is a recurrent theme through this podcast. So, of course, June 2024, election time is also going to be a milestone moment to assess whether EU policy efforts to transition to a carbon neutral economy are still supported by voters, or if greenlash, right, that we just talked about, backlash against green policy, will drive a surge in votes to populist right parties that might then slow down the, the additional ambition in this sphere in the coming five years. Now, in an article that I'm going to be publishing on this, I argue that greenlash is not inevitable and that policymakers, on the other hand, should focus on designing green policies that support the public in tackling the decarbonization challenge and highlight the social benefits that it will bring as business as usual is not really a feasible option given the toll that climate change are already taking on in Europe and given the fact that its competitors such as the US and China have been investing quite heavily when it comes to supporting these industries through subsidies so that they can gain important market shares on the global market. And finally, if we could wave a magic wand, what would your Christmas wish be for the new year? Ah, that's a, that's an interesting question. Perhaps a bit of a boring answer, I must say, but because there has been so much produced in terms of new policy proposals going through the EU machine and reaching the final seal of approval, I think what's important to see in the next year is really member states translating these policies from Fit for 55, for example, but also 
increased ambition on investing in renewables into reality on the ground. And I think it will be important also to see how recovery fund support is used to a good effect in investments that can help achieve this policy target. So here's to seeing effective implementation on the ground in the coming year and seeing sort of aspirational climate targets become reality. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today, Elisabetta, and I'm sure we'll hear more from you in the new year. Next, we are joined by the director of the CER, Charles Grant. Charles, what has Rishi Sunak achieved in terms of improving Mm -hmm. UK-EU relations? Well, he's achieved quite a lot. He's created a kind of normal atmosphere of negotiation and discussion between Britain and its European partners, which didn't really exist before he became prime minister just over a year ago. He's clearly a Eurosceptic. He voted to leave the European Union, but he does believe in having an adult and fairly sensible relationship with the other main governments in the EU and with European institutions. So there's been quite a lot of success, I'd say, in restoring Britain's relations with its partners to a sort of comfortable and normal tone. Under the previous governments of Boris Johnson and the very short one of Liz Truss, relations became really quite quite dire in many ways. So basically, he was prepared to compromise on the key issue of the Northern Ireland border, which is one of the most difficult issues deriving from Brexit. And the Windsor framework was agreed in February 2023, which more or less sorted out the difficult issue of the border and goods flowing from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, not in a way that satisfies the Ulster Unionists who are still unhappy with it, but it has actually created a solution between the European Union and the United Kingdom. So that relationship is much better now. The Windsor framework is in place. Both sides had to compromised quite a lot to achieve what they've achieved in that deal. And that has set off and allowed other deals to be done in other areas, such as Horizon. Britain has rejoined the EU's scientific research programme. It's done a deal on batteries so that we don't have to pay, at least not yet, the tariffs on electric vehicles traded across the channel because of the problem of batteries being made outside the European Union and the UK. There's a deal to cooperate between the British and the Frontex border agency. So there are deals, there is conversation, there are talks, there is a much better atmosphere. Having said that, we shouldn't get too carried away because the EU is still concerned that Sunak leads a very Eurosceptic government in which ministers talk quite openly of leaving the European Convention on Human Rights, which is integral to both the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland and the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, which governs economic relations between the UK and the EU. And recent legislation on dealing with difficulty of illegal migration into the UK has basically said that the government can disregard parts of the ECHR if it wants to, which doesn't go down at all well in Brussels, which is very committed to the European Convention on Human Rights and the European Court on Human Rights. Then, of course, there are little things like the row with Greece over the Elgin marbles that Rishi Sunak snubbed the Greek Prime Minister and refused to meet him when he was in London because of what the Greek Prime Minister Mr Takis had said about the Elgin marbles in the British Museum. So there are little things that still niggle. There are bits of tone that the EU is unhappy with. But overall, they welcome the more civilised relationship with the UK. But there's a limit to how far it can go so long as the Tory party remains a profoundly Eurosceptic party. So next year, of course, we have elections in the UK in the summer or autumn, and it looks more than likely that our next prime minister will be Keir Starmer. What would a Labour government do differently and how realistic is a big shift in approach to the EU for Starmer's first term? Well, that's a really interesting question, Octavia. And I think it does look at the moment very likely that Starmer will form a government within about a year from now. He certainly is an instinctively pro-European and most senior Labour politicians are instinctively pro-EU in a way that most Tories are anti-EU. However, I don't expect the fundamentals of the relationship to change any time soon if Labour takes power, because Starmer's very cautious. He doesn't want to rock the boat too much. He'll be worried about being attacked for being too pro-EU by some parties in the UK. 
He has set his red lines. His red lines are, we won't go back to the single market or the customs union or restore freedom of movement. So if you apply those three red lines, there's a limit to what you can do to improve the fundamentals of the relationship. And Labour has committed to recognising EU rules on plant and animal health, which will reduce some of the bureaucracy at the borders. It wants to do a deal on mobility so it's easier for business people and others to move around from the UK to the EU for short periods and vice versa. They want a closer relationship on foreign and defence policy, which is pretty obviously a good idea given the state of the world and they want to do a deal on mutual recognition of professional qualifications and certification bodies if they can but these are fairly minor things they won't change the fundamental problem with the UK EU economic relationship which is that it's rather bad for the UK and it's quite a burden on the British economy with all the friction at the border all the leaving the European regulatory agencies the restrictions on free movement of labour and so on so I think Starmer will not in the first instance be willing to reopen the TCA that's the trade and cooperation agreement and indeed, his European partners are telling him and will be telling him that they don't want to reopen it. They think it's quite a good deal and they want to leave it where it is. The real question for Starmer in the later years of his term in office, and perhaps in a second term if there is one, is can you revisit the fundamentals of the EU-UK relationship? There's a strong economic case for doing so, because as I said, the deal is not very good for the UK's economy. There's also a geostrategic case for doing so, because with Europe in a very threatening geopolitical situation, with the resurgent Russia threatening its neighbours and with possibly Trump coming back to the White House sympathising in some degree with Russia, Europe's going to be left on its own in a very dangerous world. And I've heard particularly just recently from the French and others, they would very much welcome a much closer, more intimate relationship with the British faced with all the dangers in the world so we can team up together as we share many values together. So the question is, can we get a much closer relationship in the long run? I think the real issue is this, the EU wants a much closer relationship on security. The British may say yes to that and Starmer may say yes, but they want a much closer relationship on economics, which is difficult for the EU given the red line Starmer has set. I think the real question is, in the long run, can a Starmer government persuade the EU to offer the British a unique partnership that they haven't offered to any other neighbour or third country that involves them compromising some of their principles on the so-called integrity of the single market, that it's a unified whole and you can't be in bits of it without being in all of it. I think that, I mean, the short answer is at the moment that you would say no to this such a unique partnership, allowing the British a closer relationship from the outside. But in the long run, if the British offer enough to the EU, I think the EU might actually consider agreeing to such a unique partnership, not any time soon, but in the long run. I mean, the first thing the British would have to do is restore trust by behaving in a decent, civilised way. And I think Starmer will do that fine. The second thing is make some concrete offers. And let me just suggest what these offers might involve. I think offering to align with EU business regulations as a default position would impress the EU. Accepting some sort of role for the European Court of Justice would impress the EU. Note the Labour Party is not, as far as I'm aware, ruled out either alignment with EU rules or a role for the Court of Justice. I think the EU would be happy to see more people-to-people contact with the British. The British rejoined the Erasmus Exchange programme for students, made school visits easier. If, as I said, the British offered more to European security through much closer partnership on foreign and defence policy, that would go down very well with countries in Europe that feel threatened. The British might contribute to the EU's development funds and neighbourhood policies, just like the Norwegians and the Swiss do. There could be an energy partnership so the EU could have access to North Sea wind power, which is, there's lots of it and it's quite cheap, and the British could have access to French nuclear power when they needed it. The British could offer to help rebuild Ukraine. They even offer the EU some of our fish. Britain has more fish than the EU has, relatively speaking. So I think if the British make a sensible offer, then that's a game changer and the EU could really agree, not immediately, but in a few years' time, to a much closer relationship with the British. I certainly hope that we get one because the British economy is not doing very well and needs to get closer to that of the EU. Thanks, Charles. And finally, if you could wave a magic wand 
What would your wish be for 2024? My wish for 2024 is that the European Union and the US work together to give Ukraine the maximum amount of support militarily and economically and politically by supplying it with the weapons it needs to defend its territory against Russian intrusion so it can push back against the Russians. And I think at the moment, the EU's support for Ukraine is doing okay. It's fairly solid, but there's a risk that the longer the war goes on, the more Ukraine fatigue sets in. And obviously in Washington, where I was recently, there's a lot of Ukraine fatigue and there's a real question mark as to whether the Americans can provide sufficient amounts of money and military aid to Ukraine in the future. So my wish for 2024 is Europe and America combined together to help Ukraine resist Russian intrusion and reconquer its territory. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Charles, and see you in the new year. Thanks, Octavia. Up next, we have Luigi Scazzieri, Senior Research Fellow here at the CER. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Octavia. Good to be here. So one of your main areas of focus is European security and defence. What have been the main issues and highlights of the year? So the key issue has been how European support for Ukraine can be maintained and indeed possibly increased. So since Russia's large-scale invasion last year, Europeans have done a lot to support Ukraine in financial terms, but also in military terms. So they've trained around 35,000 Ukrainian soldiers. And in terms of military support that has actually been committed to Kiev, Germany now ranks second after the United States. And the EU itself has taken on a significant role as well. So it's provided Ukraine with five and a half billion, roughly, of military assistance through the European Peace Facility, which reimburses member states for some of the cost of the equipment that they donate to Ukraine. And there are also discussions about setting up a new fund within the European Peace Facility dedicated to Ukraine and worth up to 20 billion over four years. I suppose the question is really how such support can be maintained going ahead. One of the remarkable characteristics about the type of warfare that we've seen in Ukraine is that it's characterized by a huge expenditure of ammunition and of equipment. And many European countries had fairly small stocks of weaponry and ammunition prior to the conflict. And along the US, they also lacked the ability to ramp up production quickly. So this is obviously a bit of a barrier to providing assistance to Ukraine. And it's made worse by the fact that the European defense industry is not structured to scale up production quickly. It actually faces a range of obstacles in doing so, which range from a lack of qualified workforce to a lack of certainty over the likelihood of future orders. So in many ways, while we tend to perhaps think of the challenge of supporting Ukraine in military terms, a lot of it has to do with defense industrial policy and about finding ways of increasing defense production. And the key factor there is whether member states are willing to increase their defense budget. We are seeing consistent defense spending increases across European countries. So according to the latest data from the European defense agencies, budgets rose by 6 percent in 2021 and defense spending is about 40 percent higher in real terms in 2022 compared to 2014. Whether that's enough is unclear as is the future trajectory of defense spending across Europe. For example, there are a range of doubts about whether Germany will really be willing and able to spend two percent after its special 100 billion fund runs out. And then there's a separate set of issues about how that money is spent. If it's spent on buying equipment from countries outside of Europe, 
Europe, like the US or South Korea, as has been the case so far, then that won't really lead to an increase in production capacity within Europe. And if European countries spend in an uncoordinated manner, that does little to affect the long-standing and well-known issue of fragmentation of European defence, both in terms of demand and supply. So essentially, there's no joined-up thinking about what equipment to procure, what choices to make. Defence planning processes are mainly national, and at the same time, the industrial side is also quite fragmented. So the end result is that Europeans get less money, less capabilities than they would for their money from their defence budgets. And that's bad for Ukraine, and it's also bad for Europe. And is there a role for the EU in facilitating defence production? There probably is. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that most cooperation on defence capabilities happens outside of EU structures, in bilateral formats or in small groups. So a typical example here would be the Franco-German fighter project or the fighter project between Italy, the UK and Japan. But there is a lot of thinking about how the EU can help in terms of pushing member states and defence industries to work together more closely and to increase the efficiency of defence spending. And the EU's involvement in defence industrial matters has actually deepened very significantly over the past year. The EU has been involved in the defence research side of things since before the start of the war, in particular through the European Defence Fund. But it's now also become involved in procurement. So in May, you had a decision to jointly procure ammunition for Ukraine funded through the European Peace Facility. The EU has also established an instrument to help finance the expansion of of ammunition production, the so-called Act in Support of Ammunition Production. And in October, the EU set up another instrument that's called European Defence Industry Reinforcement through Common Procurement Act, one of these very complex EU terms. But the point of that instrument is essentially to subsidise the costs of cooperation by offering EU funding to help cover some of the administrative costs of joint projects. So while these tools are relatively small in size, they're remarkable in the sense that they signal the EU becoming much more closely involved in defence industrial matters. And it's notable that the European Commission is planning to follow them up with a larger programme next year, which is likely, from what we know, to contain new incentives that are designed to encourage member states to cooperate more. So, for example, there's a discussion about a VAT waiver for equipment that's jointly procured and also for spending on cooperative projects to be taken into account when calculating budget deficits and what they mean for the EU's deficit rules. The Commission may also put forward some ideas to push member states to open up their defence markets more, but I think ultimately anything that's more of a stick than a carrot is going to be very difficult to push through because member states are, I think, unlikely to have the appetite to give much control over their procurement choices. So probably the best thing that you can do is to put forward the incentives. And these incentives, of course, depend on member states being willing to put more money in EU defence initiatives. So we'll have to see what comes of all this, but there have definitely been some very significant steps in this year. Thanks. So what are the main things we should be looking out for in the new year? So it's going to be a very important year. The trajectory of a European defence budgets, as I mentioned, is going to be crucial. I don't think we can assume that they will keep on rising as planned. There's always the temptation to cut defence spending when faced with other priorities. And that's particularly the case in those countries that are, you know, further away from Russia and that don't feel as immediately under threat. But I think the bottom line is that the degree to which 
Europeans are able to increase their defense production capacity next year is going to determine their ability to support Ukraine and to look after their own security, above all in a scenario where you might have a Donald Trump elected at the end of the year and potential reduction in support for Ukraine. Thanks, Luigi, for joining me on the podcast and see you in the new year. Thank you. Bye-bye. Next up, we have Zach Mayers, our Assistant Director and Senior Economist, Sandra Todois. Could you both start by running us through the highlights of EU AI and industrial policy in 2023? The European economy slugged along quite a bit after the big energy shock stemming from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the gas cutoff. And in that space, industrial policy returned in a big way in 2023. And it kind of returned, I think, more in the debate than that had actually been gone in terms of policy. So the EU already had a green industrial strategy focused on economically efficient ways to decarbonize like carbon pricing. And industry benefited quite a lot from access to the European Recovery Fund. But in 2023, I think in part as a response to China's and America's subsidies, Efforts to encourage or force industry really to de-risk from China spurred on by the green and digital transitions really took center stage. But many questions remained. And so just to list a few, could the EU really compete with the US and China in splashing on subsidies? How would the EU avoid this turning into a competition between its member states to attract investment? So disrupting the single market rather than fighting with the superpowers. And how does the de-risking shift fit with the EU's open trading DNA. And as China and the US have abandoned international trading norms, could Europe really be the last one standing? And I think these questions have only partially been answered last year and they will carry over in a big way into next year. And then on the tech and artificial intelligence space, I think that in some senses, there's nothing new. Europe has long been anxious about its dependence on foreign technologies and the fact that it doesn't have many big tech giants of the like of Google and Apple. But I think these worries kind of took on a new form in 2023. And that was largely because of the huge developments that we've seen in artificial intelligence in the last year with kind of chat GPT and other types of generative AI. And I think that we saw Europe kind of split into different stakeholder groups on this issue. I think on the one hand, there were some countries that saw it as an opportunity to boost European productivity and economic growth. And the thinking there would be, well, you know, Europe can happily piggyback off risky investments that are made in the US and China. And most of the economic benefits going to be from the companies that take that technology and kind of integrate it into their businesses. There are, of course, others who are more fearful about the negative impacts of AI, and there are a lot of those, at least potentially. So there's the impact on jobs from the economic disruption that it could cause, risk to kind of online safety, disinformation, and democracy. And then, of course, you know, we had, especially from the UK, a lot of worries around the larger existential threats that AI could pose. And finally, and I think we saw this towards the end of 2023, as the Artificial Intelligence Act was in its final stages of negotiation, we saw a couple of countries in the EU, France, Germany, and Italy in particular, seeing it as an opportunity for Europe to kind of get back into the tech race. And, you know, we've seen that there are a couple of AI companies like Mistral that are doing quite well in Europe. And the hope is that by not over-regulating, Europe would have a chance to catch up and have big globally successful AI companies in the way that it didn't with previous waves of technology innovation. Maybe just to like to sum up on 2023 in general, though, I, I think that overall, I would say, and I guess Sander might agree, that the results, despite all of the discussions, were relatively modest. So the EU passed some laws that did things like set targets to onshore production, make it easy to get planning permissions for certain projects, 
and loosen public procurement rules in a way that might help the de-risking agenda. And it came very close to passing a new artificial intelligence law, although I think that's going to happen in early 2024 instead. But the idea that the EU was going to compete with China and the US on sheer size of the monetary envelope that it was willing to hand out to industry, that worry didn't really come to pass. There was talk, of course, of a European sovereignty fund for much of the year, and over the course of the year, it kind of decreased in importance and kind of fizzled out for various political reasons. And so I think at the end of 2023, it looked pretty unlikely that EU companies would agree to hand over a big pot of money and to compete with the US and China at their own game. Thanks. And how do you see this all developing as we move forward into the new year? I think Zach's last point on the notorious death of the sovereignty fund is a telltale sign for what the future holds in store. The original idea was that there would be European money, as advocated by Commission President von der Leyen, to avoid that industrial policy and subsidies for firms would be lavished out by countries individually. But they did loosen state aid curbs. And so the other side of the coin was to have some European money to help the weaker and smaller countries keep up. And that, to some extent, the French had already caved to German demands not to do that as they cut the deal on looser state aid. And it never really came back. Now, the European Commission pushed a step proposal, which is like a Mickey Mouse version of the sovereignty fund. And that has also been whittled down now in negotiations to what is like Mickey Mouse baby. And so essentially it's nowhere. And I think that tells you that there will be no money really to go big on industrial policy. And so the rhetoric will be far larger than reality. And in fact, the Germans who have been criticized heavily for lavishing quite big subsidies and doing things that others couldn't may also be quite restrained because their constitutional court has basically struck down some of their more creative bookkeeping practices to comply with fiscal rules at home. And those strikes fall quite heavily on some of the funds outside the budget that were going to be used for industrial policy. And of course, there are also a lot of broader spending pressures, be it on support for Ukraine, cost of living crisis, a sort of era of fiscal normalization. And so essentially, I think that's where we're headed. And in fact, as we're recording, I find myself in the weird position where I'm hoping that Viktor Orban will let himself be bribed with frozen EU money to agree to a quite modest package of EU budget top-ups. And I'm hoping for that because there's support for Ukraine in there, which is critical. But again, the industrial subsidy part of it will be part of what will be on the sacrificial table, I think. And so will be the case in 2024. And then as for tech, as I said, the Artificial Intelligence Act is likely to get agreed in early 2024. It won't come into effect until 2025, but I think it'll be interesting to see what happens to the European AI industry in the meantime. So proponents of the act say, well, this is going to make European businesses feel more comfortable using the tech because they know it's going to be more trustworthy and more transparent. And proponents also say that, you know, it will help startups have a clearer understanding of the legal environment in which they're going to have to operate. So it provides more certainty. But of course, the risk is that these European tech firms look at the regulation and walk and say, well, the US is providing much more of a wild west where we can experiment and do what we like. And in addition to that, of course, there's the deep capital markets that mean it's kind of much easier to raise funds there. So the risk is that the AI Act is counterproductive in helping European tech scene. 
team thrive. The other thing I think is going to be interesting in the next year is the Digital Markets Act, which was passed in 2022, but early next year in March is when it will first take effect. And it will quite fundamentally change the way that some of the US big tech firms do business in Europe. And the potential is that this is going to give a lot of opportunities for small tech firms in Europe to get a fairer go at either competing with the tech giants or having fairer terms when they need to rely on them, for example, to get their apps listed in app stores or products listed on online marketplaces like Amazon. But I think it's really an open question as to whether they are going to be able to take advantage of this new law. To me, it seems likely that it will help encourage some startups, but that it's likely to be US and UK firms, which have a more thriving startup ecosystem, even though Europe has been growing, and that therefore US and UK firms will take advantage and won't really help Europe get a leg up. And finally, I think one point that's worth noting is that there has, I think, been this tension between the tech agenda and Europe's tech ambitions on the one hand, and then the other side of industrial policy, which is much more focused on manufacturing on the other. Tech offers opportunities for Europe to grow its economy, become far less dependent on China, and to kind of have an answer to the fact that its competitiveness is decreasing over time as China becomes more technologically advanced, climbs up the value chain of products in the future. But of course, for Europe to shift to a more tech-oriented economy is going to be really disruptive. And, and it's also being held back by things like labor shortages and skill shortages and a lack of appetite for risk. Whereas an industrial policy that's more focused on manufacturing seems to be more worried about kind of keeping the existing jobs and kind of limiting Europe's need to cope with massive changes. So it seems to me that the manufacturing industrial policy seems to have the upper hand at the moment and that the tech agenda is going to fall by the wayside and therefore that Europe will be more focused on regulation rather than thinking about, well, how do we get European startups to grow and to thrive? And does this mean that we have to kind of reorient the economy more generally? So I'm not very optimistic that there'll be a realistic acknowledgement of kind of the trade-offs of that in 2024, but it is something that I hope for. So that brings me on to my final question. If you could each have a Christmas wish for the new year, what would it be? My Christmas wish picks up a bit where Zach left off because essentially I think we've done a lot of work at CR this year showing that Europe's panic about losing quote-unquote competitiveness versus the US and even to an extent China is completely overblown and that if you look at green tech manufacturing, if you look at investment and even a recent piece by our new colleague Aslak, even if you look at GDP and productivity, Europe is doing actually a lot better than people think. And so my hope is that some of the panic blows over and that Europe can shed this focus on competitiveness, which implies that we would be really bad at exporting and that nobody in the world wants to buy European products and none of that's borne out by the data and yet we may end up spending a lot of political and policy capital on the wrong problem. So my Christmas wish is one, let's stop talking about competitiveness and let's start talking next year in Europe about issues where we have real problems including for example access to finance for scale-ups or startups and break it down into areas where we have real problems. Where I do think the industrial policy turn makes some sense is in the realm of Chinese mercantilism because the Chinese economy is so unbalanced and they're so heavily reliant on exports. And some of these products are really key for Europe, including the automobile sector. And so I think there, I would hope that Europe uses the tools it does have a bit more smartly, for example, by using consumer subsidies for electric vehicles in a way that we discriminate a bit against the Chinese car shock and protect our cars insofar as they're built in a much more carbon neutral way.
I would definitely second Sonder's wish. And I think just today, it looks like the French consumer subsidies for EVs are getting rolled out. And I don't think they would admit to them being protectionist. But I think the way in which issues like the carbon embedded in transporting cars from other continents is taken into account when looking at whether an EV is truly green means that it probably will be beneficial for European industry. And so I think that looking at clever ways in which the EU can comply with WTO standards and not explicitly discriminate, but can still give its own industry a leg up might be one way we can push forward with a new industrial policy in the next year. But for my own wish, and I think that Christmas wishes are allowed to be utopian, right? My wish is that the US and China realise sooner rather than later that the path that they're going down with massive subsidies that are not very well targeted and are not very efficient, that they'll realise that this isn't really a sustainable path for the future and it's not the best way to achieve either the green transition or their own kind of industrial ambitions. That may be a bit utopian, but I think when you look at the increasing debt burden in the US and China's own economic problems, where it seems that its answer cannot always be to continue doubling down on giving money to exporters and therefore keeping household income in China depressed, that doesn't seem sustainable to me in the long run. And so I would hope that maybe in the next year that the US and China, along with the EU, can kind of come back to the negotiating table and agree on at least some strengthening of the current WTO laws on subsidies which the US and China seem to be blithely ignoring. And so, you know, maybe that you won't be shown to be so naive by sticking to the WTO as some people would make out. So that's my Christmas wish. Thank you both for joining me on the podcast today and see you in the new year. Next, we are joined by Ian Bond, Deputy Director at the CER, who's going to talk to us about Ukraine. So Ian, what have been the most important developments in Russia's war against Ukraine and in the West's relationship with Ukraine this year? We all started the year quite optimistic that Ukraine would be able to build on the progress that it made in recapturing territory from Russia in the autumn of last year. But actually, it's been a year when there hasn't been much progress made on land. Ukraine's been able to inflict quite heavy casualties on the Russian army, but it's also suffered quite heavy casualties. And it's taken some territory back, but not a huge amount. So on land, I don't know whether it's right to describe it as a stalemate. That was a word that was used in an economist interview with the commander of Ukrainian forces, General Zaluzhny. But certainly in a longer article that he wrote, he described it as shifting from maneuver warfare to positional warfare, where basically the two sides are more or less static. They move a small amount at a time. And I think that's right. So not much progress on the land. It's a different picture at sea, where ironically, Ukraine, a country that doesn't have a navy, has been able to drive the Russian black Black Sea fleet out of most of the Western Black Sea. That's very significant because it's enabled Ukraine to establish a corridor for ships to export grain from Ukraine's southern port of Odessa, and indeed other ports, again. And that's economically important for Ukraine, but it's also very important for the food security of a number of countries in the Middle East and Africa in particular, which have been historically heavy importers of Ukrainian grain. So those have both been very important military developments. When it comes to the political scene, the most important development is the one that has just happened, and that is that the EU has agreed to open accession negotiations with Ukraine, hopefully starting in 2024. Now, we still have a long way to go. Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, made clear that he was not happy with this decision. He abstained rather visibly by leaving the room when the decision was 
taken so that he didn't have to be on the record either for it or against it. But he's made clear in his statements to the media that he thinks this is a bad idea. And he'll have plenty of opportunities in 2024 to obstruct the progress towards Ukraine's eventual membership, which in any case is years away. But psychologically, it is an important part of reinforcing the statement that the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen made right at the beginning of the war when she said Ukraine is one of us and this is a down payment on Ukraine eventually becoming one of us. So I think that's quite significant. And what can we expect from 2024? I think on the military front, it's likely that Ukraine is going to have to remain on the defensive. It has not received Western equipment in the quantities that would enable it to make a decisive breakthrough, I think. And hopefully next year we'll see the West doing more so that Ukraine can focus on restocking and rebuilding its forces. There are efforts to get Western aircraft to Ukraine. Ukrainian pilots are already training on F-16 aircraft. So so that could be quite important, particularly if they get them in significant numbers. And Western countries are trying to step up their production of ammunition, which has been running short in Ukraine. So I think that's the positive side. The worrying picture is what happens if Donald Trump wins the US elections. He is not a friend of Ukraine. He was in his first term quite close to Vladimir Putin, quite an admirer of Vladimir Putin. And I think that would be quite a serious situation for Ukraine. And it would force Europeans to think about how much they have at stake in this war and to invest much more in their own defence capability, which wouldn't be a bad thing, but I think would challenge a number of European countries whose defence efforts have perhaps not been as great as they could be. Thanks, Ian. Finally, if you could have a Christmas wish for Ukraine in 2024, what would it be? Well, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to ask for three wishes, as is traditional in fairy stories. But I hope these are not fairy story wishes. So the first is that the West starts taking the war seriously and ramps up defence production and the supplies that it sends to Ukraine. The fact is that although early on in the conflict, President Macron said that he was putting the French economy on a war footing, the reality is that no European country has really put its economy on a war footing. And what I mean by that is that European governments are not stepping up investment in defence production, putting firm long-term orders for new equipment and munitions in the way that they need to. The assumption has to be that this war is going to go on for some time. It might not, but the assumption has to be that it will and that therefore you have to have your economy structured to be able to deal with that. So that's the first wish. The second is that the West decides to freeze frozen Russian assets and use them for the reconstruction of Ukraine. There are something like 300 billion euros worth of Russian assets frozen in the West. About 200 billion of those are frozen in an organization called Euroclear in Belgium. And the view so far has been that there are legal obstacles to seizing these assets. That means effectively that once the war is over, that money will be handed back to Russia, leaving Ukrainian and Western taxpayers to pay for the rebuilding of Ukraine. 
think that is an iniquitous situation. And I think that there are signs of movement among some Western governments to look for creative ways of legally taking this money and using it for the benefit of Ukraine. And I think that would be a big step forward in 2024. And then my third wish is that NATO moves forward on Ukraine's membership bid. There is a NATO summit in Washington in July, and that is a moment when hopefully NATO will do more than just restating that Ukraine can join NATO at some indefinite point in the future and start to extend its security umbrella over Ukraine. Because one thing that we have learned in the first nearly two years of this conflict is that actually Vladimir Putin still respects NATO's security guarantee despite occasional saber-rattling threatening NATO territory. In fact, Russia has not deliberately attacked NATO territory at all during this conflict. There have been some accidental landings of Russian weapons on Romanian and Polish soil. But uh, by and large, the signs are that Putin still takes NATO's Article 5 mutual defence guarantee very seriously, and so he should. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Ian, and see you in the new year. So up next, I'm joined with Christina Kessler, who's going to be talking to us about the Zeitenwender, which we've heard a lot about. But what actually is it? Hi, Octavia. So the term Zeitenwender comes from a speech that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz gave on 27th February 2022. So exactly three days after the full scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. And in this speech, he described the changed circumstances as a Zeitenwender, meaning a watershed moment something that is happening to Germany. It's quite interesting because in the meanwhile, the meaning of the term Zeitenwende has changed quite a bit. Today, when people talk about the Zeitenwende, they very often refer to something for Germany to do. It has become a term to describe a rethink of German foreign and security policy instead of just a watershed moment of the international environment. So could you talk us through what's happened during the last year in German security policy? So in June, Germany released its first ever national security strategy. And obviously, analysts were looking for signs of the Zeitenwende in this document. The document has been praised for some aspects of it. For example, that it's taken quite a comprehensive view of security. But there also has been some criticism because there's a lack of clarity when it comes to military spending. And the document also does not outline a narrative for a German leadership role in Europe. Germany also has got a new defense minister since... January 2023. His name is Boris Pistorius, and he seems to have really embraced this mindset shift away from a more pacifist stance towards an embrace of hard power. In recent weeks, especially, he has repeatedly used the word Kriegstüchtig in interviews. So Kriegstüchtig translates to fit for war. And this is a quite controversial term to use in the German context. You will also find the term in the new defense policy guidelines that Germany has recently released. Germans really like Pistorius as a politician. He now for a while has been leading the rankings of Germany's most popular politicians, but that doesn't mean that they agree with him on everything. And especially on this specific word, the use of the word Kriegstüchtig, he has gotten quite a lot of criticism, including from members of his own party, the Social Democrats. Thanks, Christina. And what can we expect for German security policy in the next year? Germany will definitely continue supporting Ukraine. Over the last weeks, 
there have been some troubles in the German coalition government over the new budget. But the coalition partners have now reached a deal and the deal really shows that the support to Ukraine is firm and every major party in Germany is committed to it. However, when it comes to this larger mindset shift that I was previously talking about, I think it is questionable how lasting a shift we're really seeing. Like I just mentioned, the rhetoric of Boris Pistorius when he mentions the term fit for war is quite often criticized in Germany. And while Germany really supports Ukraine, there's also no sense that there's an immediate threat to German security itself. Public polls indeed show that a majority of Germans don't want a German military leadership role in Europe. And I think this is also what we're going to see in the next year. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Christina, and see you in the new year. Thanks, Octavia. And finally, we have Camino Mortero Martinez, the head of our Brussels office here at the CER, who's going to be talking to us about enlargement and the rule of law. Welcome to the podcast, Camino. Thanks, Octavia. So could you talk us through some of the highlights of the last year? When I was thinking about what I was going to tell you in a podcast of a year in review, sort of like lots of the things that I was thinking were negative because we have this grim view in the world at the moment with everything that's happening in Ukraine and obviously in Gaza, the results of the elections in the Netherlands and some other things which have been making our life a little bit difficult. But then when I think about the two topics I've been following more closely over the past 12 months, which are indeed enlargement reform of the European Union and the rule of law, we can see a glimmer of hope. So first, I think 2023 has been the year where the European Union has gotten serious about enlargement both to the Western Balkans and to Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia. And obviously the highlight of this would have been last week's European Council, where EU leaders agreed to open accession talks with Ukraine with the absence of Viktor Orban, who was apparently finding a coffee somewhere. I think this is just the beginning of a lone road, and probably we can talk a little bit more about that. But it did send a very important message. It was not an easy fit to manage, and I think it's something that we wouldn't have thought would have been possible a few months ago. And this is, I think, because momentum behind enlargement has been growing. Over the second part of the year, we were a bit worried that this momentum was lost. But I think this important step on the European Council last week means that at least it's not as bad as some of us thought it was. The second highlight relates to the rule of law. There has been a lot of bad news about the rule of law. Orban, once again, is now becoming the most liberal leader in Europe. But we did have good news on October 15th with the result of the police elections and Donald Tusk now being Poland's prime minister. Now, there are a lot of expectations on Poland. Some of them might be too great, perhaps. But one thing that I think grants optimism is that the rule of law and the state of the rule of law in Poland is definitely going to improve. And for that, I know this is a very niche techie highlights, but to me, the decision of the new justice minister, Adam Bodnar, to kickstart the process for Poland to join the European Public Prosecutor's Office last week, I think it was, was also a big highlight of this 2023. Thanks, Camino. And what can we expect to see in the coming year? Well, I'm actually quite scared about what's coming in 2024, mostly because we have a very important election happening in November in the US and a not less important election happening here on this side of the Atlantic in June for the European Parliament. It's going to be a bumpy year, I think, not least because a lot of these elections, both of them, are going to be fought 
on similar lines, I think, similar dividing lines of polarized societies where support for authoritarian, illiberal leaders is unfortunately growing in some parts of the West and support for Ukraine is unfortunately wavering as well in some parts of Ukraine. And I think these elections, both of them, especially the US one, are going to be extremely important for the future of Ukraine and its Western perspective, but also for the way the world looks, if you want, over the next few years. I think the world will look very different with Trump in the White House and a surge of nativist liberal parties on this side of the Atlantic in the European Parliament with the impact such a surge would have on the way the European Commission can function, on the leadership of the European Commission and also on the interaction in between the European Parliament, the Commission and obviously the European Council. And finally, if we could grant you one wish for the new year, what would it be? My Christmas wish for 2024 is that despite it being a monster year of elections everywhere, we still go back to something resembling normalcy when it comes to external shocks. I know this is very naive (laughs) and I know this is a selfish wish in a way, but... I think the world has seen exceptional events happening over the past three to four years. The pandemic, the war, Gaza, you name it. And I think we could do with some tranquility around the world. Obviously, I'm not a beauty pageant, so I'm not going to say peace in the world. But if the world could become a little bit quieter, I think we would all benefit of this time to think, reflect, and be a little bit more rational and less polarized. Thanks, Camino. And I think that's a nice note to end the podcast on. So thank you to all of our listeners at home for following along with the podcasts over the past year. We wish you a happy festive period and new year and we'll see you in 2024. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.